morning once again. Uh, we, today we're starting a new sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel. This is a, a book, it's a, one of those uh, books in the Old Testament. It's a book of history, but very specifically this is a book that is about a spiritual awakening and revolution within the Israelites' lives. Like, so if you look at your English Bibles, or you look at your Bibles, it's not like you guys have Hebrew Bibles here. It goes like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. So like in our Bibles, that it's Ruth comes before First Samuel. That's not the case in those Hebrew Bibles that you don't have in front of you. And in the, within the Hebrew Scriptures, it goes Joshua, Judges, Samuel. And so in the book of Judges... Uh, th- this is why this is significant. In the book of Judges, there's this constant refrain that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And as you're wrapping up the book of Judges like four times in like, the last five chapters or so, you, find, you hear the refrain, and there was no king in the land. And so with all this in mind, you're now coming into First Samuel, and we are encountering right away this certain language that makes you expect that a king is about to show up. And by the way, it's complete head fake. A king does not show up till 1 Samuel 8. But some of that language is like a certain man named Elkanah. That's the language that's used to describe Samson's father. But also as you jump into 1 Samuel 1, as we'll see in a moment, there's a genealogy. When you look at all the genealogies of Scripture, not all of them, but like, we'll say like 95% of them, genealogies, who gets a genealogy? Kings get a genealogy. And so some, you are coming, if you're coming into 1 Samuel with this like mindset that you would gain from reading the Hebrew Scriptures, you're expecting a king to show up. You're expecting something significant to happen because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and there's no king in the land. And so what 1 Samuel really sets the scene for is a new prophet and a new king. And so very specifically, that prophet is Samuel and Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And if you actually like Samuel and this guy named Samson in the book of Judges, they're actually contemporaries. So that'll help you think about and see where this book of 1 Samuel comes from. But so even though, as I said, this is a book about spiritual awakening and spiritual revolution and how you are expecting a king, right away in 1 Samuel 1, you're not going to see a king. You're going to see a woman who is suffering, and she takes her sufferings to God in prayer. And that is actually where the spiritual awakening and spiritual revolution begins in our life. Where there is suffering and there is plight. And we take these things to God in prayer. So this morning we're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And if you uh, receive the uh, church email uh, I believe it was yesterday. In the church email, I, said, I shared that I'm going to be using a certain translation of the Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, for the series on 1 Samuel. The Christian Standard Version is just known for its clarity and accuracy. A lot of the translators um, who were involved with that version were involved with the ESV and others. But the wonderful thing about this translation, it's clear. 
It's actually at a seventh grade reading le level as opposed to like a high school reading level. And so that's the translation you'll see in the worship guides and on the wall uh, behind me. And so that may explain some of the differences in your own translations if you have your Bible in front of you. But anyways, let's give our careful attention to the reading of this book, this book that we love, that God has given to us so that we would know him. This is 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 18. There was a man from Ramathiam, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second named Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely, just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest, Eli, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am not a woman. I, see, I am a woman with a broken heart. I have not had any wine or beer. I have been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Do not think of me as a wicked woman. I have been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given us. And we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would be shaped by your word, and that your spirit would plant your word deeply in our hearts and life, that we would show the fruit of your spirit in our daily lives because of our time today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As many of you know, I have two young boys. And they ask Jennifer and I to help them out with a lot. It could be putting on their socks, putting on their shoes, cutting their sandwich, peeling a banana, or if we do all those things, then whining and complaining about it. <laughs> and Liam, our oldest, he knows how to uh, tie his shoes, but there are these moments when he says, hey, daddy, can you help me tie my shoes? He is asking for his parents' help 
primarily because he is actually wanting to get out of tiny shoes or perhaps to enjoy being served by his parents. And the other day we decided to go on a hike and we're on this very well-worn asphalt path and then we see this trail off to the side up the hill next to us and we decided to to explore and go on that hike. And as we're hiking that, that little path, we discovered some mountain bike trail. And on one side, there's a cliff. And it just drops right down. And at Toby, our youngest, was like, Daddy, can you please hold me? I was like, yeah, I don't want you to fall, child. So yes, where all this goes is that actually something that Jesus says in the New Testament that we are to ask things of our Heavenly Father. Like children ask for things from their parents. We are to ask things of our Heavenly Father like children ask for things from their parents. And so when we think about this idea of asking, which is actually seen all throughout this passage and even later than the, into the verses that we read, it's asking is the central theme of this passage. But we do not ask God for things. We do not ask because we do not believe God can do the impossible. We do not ask God to do things because we actually don't want to be that close to him. We do not ask things for God for a a lot of different reasons. We may actually think that, yes, God may want to answer our prayers. Well, actually, maybe God wants to answer your prayers, but he won't want to answer my own prayers. We'll we'll think about it uh, this way. And this is a passage that shows us that God can actually do the impossible. And that there is, in fact, this beautiful intimacy that comes in a relationship with God. And not only that, it's actually good to ask for things pertaining to the kingdom. But also, perhaps very differently and unlike Hannah, we don't ask things from, from, from God because we are afraid of what it may cost us. And so if we want to think about this passage, or to think about this passage, God wants us to ask. In fact, he delights, this was our assurance of forgiveness, that he delights to provide for us. He delights to give us the kingdom. But so we are to ask for the things that we are actually unable to do. That we are to ask God to do all the things that we are unable to do. And so an outline to this passage is to think about Hannah's plight, Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's peace. Hannah's plight, Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's peace. We see Hannah's plight immediately for us in these verses, that Hannah is childless. She is childless. She is unable to have children for some unknown reason. So she is infertile. She is barren. She's unable to have children. And so infertility to us in our experience, it is a part of the curse of sin upon our life. And its impact is deeply hurtful. If you go through infertility and you, know, and you, you go through this, you know this actually, that you will ask yourself all sorts of questions. Why is this the case? What is wrong with me? And so much more. Because infertility can br- brings about an immense sense of shame. And, it's, and that's because it comes from the curse, where it's, you know it's something that's wrong inside your life. And so for us, it can actually be a very, very painful experience. And Hannah is displaying this for us, that this is Hannah's experience as well. But like while that's thinking about 
infertility in our experience, there's another dynamic of infertility for Hannah's experience. Because in the ancient context, children would care for their elderly parents. And so having children was one way of being cared for and protected even as you would grow up. But the point to really notice, in a sense, is that within the biblical story, is that without children, where would the promise of redemption be? Without children, where would the promise of redemption be? Think about the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, that the seed of a woman will crush the seed, crush the serpents, that the children, a child, will crush the head of the serpent. So for Hannah, she is another layer of her grief is she is actually unable to participate in the God's redemptive story as she wants to. So that here's this barren, her infertility, her barrenness. It's a personal tragedy, just as it is today, but it also carried a sense of exclusion from the purposes of God's people. And so Hannah wants to participate in the story of God. She wants to be involved in God's redemptive work. And we see this very clearly. This is 1 Samuel 1.28. She asks for a son from the Lord, and then she returns that son back to the Lord. Her action is showing us what her real concern is. And as we think about the entire story of Scripture, there are other examples of barrenness in Scripture. You have Sarah who's the wife of Abraham. You have Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. You have Samson's mother in Judges 13. But then even fast-forwarding to the New Testament, you have Elizabeth, with, who is John the Baptist's mother. And so here we have a simple thread to look at throughout Scripture that Scripture highlights something here with barrenness and infertility. That when we find these details being focused on within Scripture, you can actually expect God to work. That God, we should expect God to work. And so here's Hannah, and she's joining an all-star cast. She's joining the mother of the Israelite nation and, the, and, and much more. And here's Samson's mother who's raising up a judge. And Elizabeth with John the Baptist being the, John the Baptist being a herald to the Messiah. And so these women are God's instruments in raising up people for salvation, but their starting point is they can't participate in God's story. And this is the thing that God starts at this point. That God's starting point is our inability. This is, our helplessness is not a barrier to God's work in our life, but actually our helplessness is actually where God starts from. This is a precondition for his work in this world. And so very specifically, we learn a few things about Hannah here. But one of the things that we learn about her is that it is actually the Lord that has kept her from conceiving a child. And that's mentioned two or three times. But the question for us is, what do you do with this information? What do you do with this information? And in this story, we, ha- we see several people who do different things with this information. And so while... One for one example, like there's four examples here. For one example, while Hannah was married to Elkanah, she shared him with another woman named Peninnah. And in Hebrew, names carry significant meaning. Hannah means, means favored, but Peninnah means fruitful. 
She had several sons and daughters, but Hannah, instead of displaying compassion, she actually mocks Hannah. And they are presented to us as rivals, that she would come and mock Hannah, and she would taunt her. She would seek to provoke her. And so that's one response. Another response is actually from her husband, Elkanah. He loves her. And that scene and the fact that he gives her a double portion of meat, that it's not just hers, her allowance, so to speak, of, from the sacrificial system, but twice, a double portion. But at the same time, he also pities her. He says, why won't you eat? Am I not enough for you? Isn't being married to me worth more than having ten sons? Like this attitude simply says that I ought to be important enough to you for you to get over your grief. It's actually, think about it, it's very condescending and it's very dismissive. And this is coming from her husband. And so then there's Eli, and we'll spend more time with Eli next week. But here's Eli. He's a priest at Shiloh, and he doesn't know what Hannah's backstory is in any way, shape, or form. But right now, he actually only adds to her suffering and to her plight. That what's so fascinating about Eli is that he, he's a priest, but he can't distinguish between prayer and drunkenness. Point being is that's a significant problem for a priest not to be able to distinguish. That's next week, by the way. But prayer at the Shiloh sanctuary was so rare that Eli could not recognize it when he saw it. And his inability to identify what Hannah was doing points to the apostasy of the priest during the time of Judges. It's like, that's going out next week, by the way. And so here is Eli, and he's simply adding to her suffering. There's no pastoral care. There's no gospel encouragement. There's none of that. Instead, he adds to her plight. And so, but here's Hannah and what does Hannah do? She prays. She takes her suffering. She, she takes all the mockery, all the pity. She, she takes her desires to the Lord in prayer. This is our second point about Hannah's prayer. And Hannah's prayer for us is seen in verses 11 through 16. But her prayer, on one level, is inaudible. Like her mouth is moving and Eli witnesses that, but he's not hearing any words of her mouth. But her pain her pain is actually what is visible for us. That deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. And so there's a pain there. And I'll come back to her pain in a moment. But then we also have the specific content of her prayer, where it's the Lord of armies. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair shall never be cut so here we have Hannah where she's pouring out her emotion. She's pouring out her pain. She's pouring out her heart before the Lord. She's praying from these points of resentment and anguish here. And she asks for a son, even committing to give him back to the Lord. So the first thing to realize about this prayer is that this is true prayer. That if every single one of us should actually desire to pray in this way. That this is a true prayer that arises from deep anguish, bitter weeping, misery, being deeply troubled, and including more anguish and more grief. That's repeated a few more times. And her grief actually remo removes her hunger. She is so hurting that she's not 
eating, and she's visibly despondent. And so where this goes is that we actually think that we can manage life without God. And so when we, and what this does in our prayer life is that our prayer life actually end up as a duty to perform, something just to check off the box, where prayer is simply an option to go about our busy day. But prayer for Hannah is not an option. This is not just checking something off the box. She did not get up from the meal because she forgot to have her quiet time. It, this is a cry of a heart that is breaking. This is a cry of an anguished soul. And there's something to know about ourselves here that we often bring into our life of prayer as Western Americans. And the thing to highlight is that emotions freak us out. Often we ignore our emotions or bury our emotions by using our intellect, the things that we know, as a security blanket. So we ignore our, our emotions, overlook our doubts, hold on to doctrine, and when we do this, we actually prevent God's truth from going deep into our hearts and our life. And we need our emotions to show us what's going on in our hearts, in our life. We need to bring these emotions to God because God designed and made us with emotions to tell us something about ourselves. And that when you look at the Psalms that are clearly within Scripture, they are incredibly emotional. That Here's Psalm 77. It sounds almost blasphemous that God, I think of you and... You're like, first off, you're the reason for my insomnia, and I think about you, and I'm just going to groan and complain. That's Psalm 77. But here is Asaph being very honest with what's going on in his heart and his life. And so the point is, is that we actually need to bring our emotions to God in prayer, but also our emotions, one of the ways, one of the reasons why God gave us emotions is to actually drive us to prayer. When our hearts are broken, when we're bitter, when we're in anguish, when, our, when we're in these moments, we need to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. But here's the wonderful good news about prayer. It's not really about prayer. It's actually about life with God. Is that there's no such thing as etiquette when it comes to prayer. God allows us to pour out our hearts and sob at his feet. He can handle our tears. They do not make him nervous. They don't make him uncomfortable. They freak us out. But God actually made us with our emotions. And so this may even sound blasphemous, but God can even, even handle your curses. He doesn't want your perfection. He doesn't want your propriety. He just wants you. And the Lord delights it, delights in the, in the fact that you ask and you come before him. And here's Hannah, and she knows all this. This is really beautiful. That asking God for things is the language of intimacy. That asking is the language of dependence. And asking, asking even reveals the level of intimacy that you have with God. So Charles Spurgeon, he says that asking is the rule of the kingdom. And so this intimacy of being close to God is cultivated in our life through asking God for things. And he delights to give you the kingdom. And so we see this about Hannah's prayer, that she's in her, her emotion here. 
But we also see whom she's addressing and whom she's talking to in this prayer. Because who is able to meet the needs that she has? Who's able to provide for her? To see a barren womb transformed to fruitful. Actually, the, she knows who's able to do that, and that's the Lord of Armies. And the Lord of Armies, in other translations, you'll see Lord of Hosts as it's most commonly. And this is actually the first time in redemptive history that that name is used to refer to God. And this name is meant to give you this picture that God is all-powerful beyond your comprehension. And so by even using this word, you're basically saying, God, I know you can do the impossible. When you th- and Jesus spoke about this as, as, as well when he even connected to prayer and faith. Where he says, when you pray and you have faith, you can move mountains. It's like, wait, what? That should stretch your imagination. Like, how's that work? And that's the same idea that's going on with this title of God, the Lord of of armies. And so as she's coming to God, she's praying to him to highlight the fact that her husband's no, not a comfort to her. her pri- the priest, Eli, is not a comfort to her. And it's only God who's a comfort to her. And so the, at this point, just to highlight this, can you imagine God doing the impossible in your life? Can you imagine God doing the impossible in your life? See, Hannah knows the stories that you yourself know. She knows the story of God rescuing his people. She knows the fact that God heard the cries of his people Israel in Egypt and he rescued and delivered them from the land of physical slavery in Egypt. And she also knows these stories of Sarah and Rebekah. She knows these stories, how God is able to open a woman's womb. And she knows who God is, that he is a God who hears the prayers and the cries for help from his people. And that confidence arises from faith. And it's that faithful confidence that gives her the freedom to pour out her emotions before God. And this is whom Hannah prays to. This is whom Hannah asks for a son, that he is the Lord of armies, that he is the creator, he is the rescuer, he is the one who restores our dreams. He is our rock, he's our refuge, he's our present help in our distress. But even continuing with her prayer, yes, she's addressing God, she's bringing all her emotions before God, and she comes to God with an ask. She asks God for a son. But she does not ask to keep her son. She asks for a son to give back to God. Go back to something I said earlier. We do not ask God for things because of what it may cost us. And here's what's so incredible about Hannah's faith is that she asks for her heart desire and says, Lord, it's yours. And that is a picture of even the stewardship in our life. And it ought to be instructive to us as parents. It should be instructive for every single one of us. Because what are you asking for in your life? What are you asking for on behalf of the people in your life? As parents, what are you asking for on behalf of your children? 
in church, what are you asking for on behalf of your neighbors and for this church as well? What are you asking for? We have a God who can do the impossible, but are we only asking God to actually give us the things that we want, or are we asking God to give us the kingdom, even if it costs us something? And so what Eli steps into this, he, and, he, and at this point, he's like, oh, wait, you're praying? Talk about, he just called her a drunk. It's like, talk about awkward for a moment. And Eli hears this. He realizes what's going on. He, hears what's, he realizes what's going on, and he pronounces a mini benediction, a blessing over her. He says, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you the request that you have asked of him. And she replies, may your servant find favor with you. And so here we clearly see that Hannah has peace. This is the third thing to consider. That this is her peace, may the favored one. Her name, Hannah, means favor. Favored one. May the favored one find favor. And so she leaves the sanctuary. She goes back to her husband, Elkanah. She eats, and her disposition is changed. It greatly improves. But think about this for a moment. What changed? Has she conceived and been given a son yet? The answer is no. What changed? The only thing that she did was that she prayed. She prayed and everything changed. She prayed to the one who was able to do the impossible and everything changed for her. And that she is able to return to her husband's pity. She's able to return to the mockery of her rival. And her prayer is not yet answered. The only thing that changed was that she prayed. And that's actually exactly the point. Hannah has peace because she prayed. And she knows the truth that the apostle Paul wrote about 1,500 years later in Philippians 4. Do not worry about anything but in everything. Through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That prayer is able to give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. And she has this peace because she asked the Lord. And one of the things that we see, as I said earlier, that this idea of asking is all throughout this passage. That if you actually fast forward to verses 27 and 28, this word ask is actually mentioned four times. The word, the name Samuel is actually, has its roots in this Hebrew word of ask. And so when, in other words, when she says about this, I prayed for this boy. And since the Lord gave me what I asked for, he is, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. That's verses 27-28. But and one way of actually looking at this is that may God give you the Samuel that you have Samueled. That's some of the Hebrew language at play here. But here's the question for us to think about for a moment. Does asking God for things does asking God bring you peace that surpasses all understanding? And this is a passage that shows us that God is capable to meet the impossible. This is a passage that shows us that the Lord does indeed answer our prayers. 
That James 4.2, we, we, we read that we do not have because we do not ask. And we have a God from Luke 12.32 who delights to give you the kingdom. But many times, here's the reality and something to consider, that many times we do ask, and yet we don't see an answer. We don't see the answer, at least the way that we want it. And the reality is, is that here's God. He is all loving. He is all good. And he wants what is truly best for you, not according to our definition, but according to his definition. And if we know that everything that God knows, if we, we desire things as God desires them, we, we would actually answer the prayers exactly the way he provides for us and get, answers them. And so for Hannah, coming back to Hannah, it's not her... It's not our experience that's the interpretive key. It's actually for her what we see, how we, it's her song that is actually instructive to us. And this is jumping into 1 Samuel 2. And here's something to consider for a brief moment, that Hannah is a picture of Mary in the New Testament. That in both 1 Samuel 2 and then in Mary's song as well in the New Testament, they are very similar themes. And this gets at the spiritual revolution that they are about to witness in their lifetimes. That the high will be brought low and the low will be exalted. And this is like, like I said, Mary, Mary's song when she was carrying Jesus and going to give birth to him. That there's a spiritual rebirth going on in the life of Israel. And so Tim Chester, who is a pastor in England, he writes this in his commentary on this passage, that Hannah is a picture of the church in our generation. We are favored by God, but we appear to be barren. Where are our spiritual children? Where are those who are converting to Christianity? And our churches are barren. And our weakness, our weakness should not lead us down the path to try different gimmicks, but our barrenness, our inability, our weakness should drive us to the Lord in desperate prayer instead of retreating from him in resigned defeat because God is able to do the impossible. So here we see Hannah's peace, that she has a peace that surpasses all understanding because she prayed. So to Draw this to a close. We are to ask great things of God. We are to ask God to do the impossible because we are unable to do them, but he is able to do them. That he is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who walked on water. That he is the one who created this world out of nothing. That he has even worked in your heart and he has given you the miracle of the new birth. That he is the God who has opened Hannah's womb. But you know who else he is? He is your heavenly father who delights to give you the kingdom. So ask him. Ask him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you are our heavenly father. That you are a good father. That you are the Lord of armies who is able to do the impossible that you delight and you desire to give us the kingdom to meet our needs as we, and to answer our prayers. So, Father, we pray that you give us hearts of faith that we would 
go to you in prayer. That in our grief, we would go to you. As our hearts break, we would go to you in prayer. That we would pray great things for ourselves. That we would pray for your Spirit to give us more. That we would see more fruit of the Spirit in our life. That we would see uh, faithfulness amidst struggling with sin. That we would see conversions. That we would have a greater confidence. That we would have a boldness in sharing our faith. That, we'd have, that we would see you ministering to us. So Lord, we pray that, you'll pray, that we pray that, that you would meet us in our brokenness, in our hurts. And Father, we recognize that there are many who are here this morning who are deeply hurting. And we pray that you would minister deeply to them as well. We pray for your blessing and, and we ask all these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen.